Well, I'm, uh, my name is Kent. I'm a pastor here at SOMA, and we are concluding our Advent series in Global Missions because this Advent we took the time to say, okay, if Jesus is ultimately uh, sent in Advent as the first missionary, then what does it look like for us to be a church that follows after his likeness and has a vision for us participating in missions? And we've recognized we're a young church. We're not rolling out this big and robust missions program right now, but just rather as saying, okay, what does it look like for us to continue to grow and develop as people who are both intentional in the way that we are promoting the kingdom and mission of God here in our city, and then being a part of connecting with things like what the Newells are doing and other people are doing around the world, and maybe even, just maybe, being a part of someday sending our, our own, sending our people uh, like the Newells are, uh, some, uh, some of members and other members from our congregation, sending them out to be a part of what God's doing, um, not just across the street, but across an ocean. And so uh, as we've done that, as we've talked about the vision, I just want to, we want to culminate in this idea, is that maybe you're here and maybe you're somebody who has considered missions for your life, whether that be global or that be local uh, or that be uh, in a vocational sense, or you're somebody who's just like, I want to live my life intentionally on mission and everything that I do. So even though I'm a teacher, I'm a missional teacher. Even though I am in uh, construction I, and, or in project management, I'm missional in the way that I do that. And so regardless of where you are uh, and you have considered, and again, that goes from crossing streets to crossing oceans, there's always this sense of like, okay, but what about that sense of when I don't want to? When I don't have the desire, or maybe I know I should be in mission in my daily life, or I should, maybe now I'm feeling this call, something big, but ultimately I'm in that place where, like what Edison talked about just a moment ago, just that, that pull of like, do I want to go after what God, I feel God clearly calling me to, or am I going to wrestle him in it? And ultimately we have to recognize there's a lot of reasons why you'd have to wrestle with a call to God, which I believe all of us have here today. God is calling us to something, again, whether it's big and spectacular or if it's something small and mundane, he's calling us into something. And there's lots of reasons why we sometimes balk at the call, particularly to missions. One, it's just for fear of man. Because let's face it, when you're spreading a gospel to try to uh, bring people into a kingdom, that is something that is our world and our society right now is generally opposed to. People will say, I like Christianity, I like the idea, the concept a lot of times, but I don't love that it's like we're trying to convert people. Why do we have to continually be converting people into what we believe? I think wisely Sam Keller has always pointed out that in saying that you're converting people to the idea of not converting people, which in itself is a converting idea. But regardless, in that, they're saying that, hey, I, I like that you can uh, have this for yourself, but why does it have to be something that you have to make awkward moments for other people, potentially risk friendships? risk relationships, risk opportunities at work. And so there can be a, a fear. There can also be just a sense of, man, to step into mission, sometimes God calls us intentionally to sacrifice on the level that we can consume. Because, man, it's a lot nicer just to think about it at the end of the day rather than being intentional with my neighbor, just it being Netflix o'clock and tuning out for an hour or two. Or having a good meal or a fun experience, travel, just using these things to enjoy. And again, there's nothing wrong with those things. Often God gives us opportunity to enjoy those things. But there's times where mission is going to be defined by giving up everything for a cause. That's why mission is the most central thing of every organization. And they're always going to come back to the mission, to the what is the cause that we are trying to do? Because they realize in order to, for you to be fully on board and to give all that you need to give, you need to be fully 
infected by the cause. And so I'm willing to give up consumption. I'm willing to give up comfort. I'm willing to become uncomfortable. I'm willing to give up control. My plan, my time, my situation that is my way. Because ultimately mission, again, isn't always messy, but it gets messy. I mean, if you read the Gospels, think about how many times Jesus does ministry because he's interrupted by somebody. He's walking along and somebody calls him out of where he was doing, where he was going, and stops him, and he has the ability to stop and sit there, not on his plan. He always says, hey, I'm, ultimately I'm not doing what I want to do, I'm doing what I see the Father doing. And so you say, okay, well, this has been... Um, ineffectual if your goal is to get us to want to do missions because you've effectively talked us out of it now. Uh, So let's just address that question head on. What do you do with a I don't want to or I struggle to want to? What is the primary motivation that will actually push us into mission? I think you actually see it all throughout the Bible, but we're going to read it because it's Christmas out of Luke 2. Because if you haven't watched Charlie Brown's Christmas yet, then you need to hear this story at least the five times this week. <clears throat> Luke 2 is on page 857 uh, in the Black Bibles. I'll read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them in heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So essentially you have in this story Christ being born, and then you get a picture of the very first missionary team sent out, which is these group of shepherds, which we don't necessarily have uh, maybe the best category for uh, what a shepherd would be in our day and age. I mean, it would be uh, somebody who probably did not excel in school, probably didn't finish school, and is working now primarily with animals living on the outskirts of town. These are not seen as high in society and are definitely not seen high in religious life. And they're sent out as the first missionaries to tell people about the birth of Jesus. And you see them do it 
And again, my question is, is what just makes these people who are not exactly prized in society all of a sudden start going telling everybody that they know something they just learned hours before? And do you see the primary vo- uh, uh, discipline or this primary motivation being self-discipline or guilt and shame or fear? All strong motivators that can get a lot of work done. But ultimately you see in their case and throughout the scriptures when people experience God, They experience joy. And joy is a controlling, motivating power. You see it in 15, uh, verse 15, where it says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem. Let us see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. It's the moment of, hey, they've been told this and they're going. They're going probably at some level of cost or inconvenience to themselves. I mean, they're watching sheep, so they're either leaving those sheep in the field, which would be dangerous to their bottom line, or they're taking sheep with them into the uh, city of Bethlehem to find this situation. Either way, it is not just something that they're going to naturally do if they don't have some motivation driving them forward. Because here's what we've learned about just human psychology and things uh, in the last so many years. Fear is a pretty strong motivator. We're coming into a political year, so we're going to see fear being used on all sides of the political aisle to try to get people to vote right now because it's whether this person is elected or this person is re-elected or whatever it is, you need to know that this is the situation that could happen and fear is going to drive a lot of people to start to say, okay, but you need to get out and do these things. Hey, look at the alternative reality. And that also is used sometimes in marketing, but it's used less so. And so there might be the same, hey, you might miss out on this. But here's why it's used less so. It's because fear is strong, but it's used in short bursts. I'm afraid, and so I can do something in a quick burst. But if I want something sustaining, if I want something to be a lifelong motivation, fear ultimately is insufficient. It has to be one of love or joy. Or I would actually say those are one and the same. That joy is a simple, or love is simply taking joy in something other than yourself. Blaise Pascal, who's a philosopher and a, uh, a, yeah, just a, a, a thinker, a Christian thinker uh, of yesteryear here says this. He says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What is he saying? Ultimately, everything you do is motivated by that which you believe will bring you the deepest joy. Again, this is why commercials have keyed in on this idea, and you know this because now watch most commercials where we are questioning what are they even trying to sell here until the last 10 seconds where we've been like hiking through the mountains and having the, uh, unicorn with a rider show up, and all of a sudden it's like pistachios. And you're like, okay. And you're like, what was the moment, like what were we all leading to there? And it's because we know this, and the marketing world knows this as well. You don't need information about their product. You could care less about what it actually does for you. But if they can associate their product with things that bring you joy, with things that you find pleasurable, with things that, you, that bring you life, then you will be willing to pursue that. Because joy is ultimately what motivates you. 
You'll even sacrifice greatly if you believe the sacrifice leads you to joy. I work out because I like to eat dessert. And I know that ultimately, if I lead myself through the sacrifice of working out, then I can participate in the joy of working out or of having dessert later and eating over 7,000 tons of ice cream in the lifetime. And I can do that because I will sacrifice for the greater joy. Or people will pursue getting up and going to work. And maybe if you're motivated by the mission, maybe you're excited about that, or maybe you're not, but ultimately you realize, no, there's something beneficial to providing myself, so I will get up and I will do that, which maybe I don't want to do in this moment, because I know it leads to a deeper joy. Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus going to the cross, and it says this, Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why does Jesus go to the cross? For the joy set before him. He endures sacrifice, the most horrific form, the art form of executing someone committed by the Roman government. Because the joy set before him. It is a controlling, powerful motivator. Not only is it a powerful motivator, it also is something that just naturally overflows. I mean, you have to share about things that you find good. I mean, just let you find a show or a book or an album that changes your life. And then it's just like the thing where you're just like looking around for other people being like, do I think they've watched Stranger Things? Have you watched it? You haven't watched Stranger Things? Let's go right now. I will go. I will take care of your children for the next 14 hours so you can binge watch and we can talk about this later. Because ultimately we have something in us that when we find something good, it just comes out of us. I mean, look at verse 20. And the shepherds return. This is after this moment they've had. They've experienced this uh, experience with God. They come and they become those who are just naturally proclaiming. And then 20 says, And the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it was told them. It just naturally comes out of them. You see this in adults, but you see it even more clearly in kids. Like when you accidentally stumble upon their passion uh, topic and you're like, wow, I did not have 45 minutes to know about Papa but you did not care in this moment. I, I think of my, uh, my oldest son, we were recently at a birthday party, uh, actually, of, of our Mitchell community, uh, people in our Mitchell community were at their son's birthday party, and he had, they'd gotten a gift of uh, a Rescue Bots Academy character of Mannix. Uh, and he just like brings the, we bring the gift and like, he's like sitting there waiting for the gifts to be opened the whole time. And then as the uh, other boy is sitting there opening the gift, just the second he rips off the paper, my son just explodes with the, it's Mannix, it's Mannix. And you're like, wow, that was like physically harming you to keep that in to this point because he had a message of great joy for all people <laughs> that Mannix is here. Because what we love naturally explodes out of us. Joy is a controlling motivation, and it's an exploding motivation. C.S. Lewis uh, says this, and I've used this quote before, but we had our fourth kid this year, so I've stopped reading as much. So um, He says this, it's, so, it's, worth, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or of giving honor. I'd never noticed that all enjoyment 
spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, uh, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Praise, I love this phrase, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist then is telling everyone to praise God, is doing what all men do when they speak what they care about. We, what we delight to do, what we indeed can't help but doing with everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. And what's Lewis saying? Along with, uh, with Pascal and along with the scriptures and what's being is that there is something about joy that is naturally going to explode out of you. And so when we start to think about man sacrificing for the sake of mission, we think about changing and rearranging lives. Ultimately, the call is not, okay, you sacrifice and you live a glum life, but rather, no, it's that you pursue such deep joy in the gospel and Jesus and being in the presence of the Father that it explodes out of you and motivates you to do things that people say that's foolish, unwise, crazy, or at best, a toss-up because ultimately you are have a controlling and overflowing motivation within you and so ultimately what's the joy that we take uh that we find joy in because you're like okay well that's great but uh ultimately i have not experienced uh sitting in the countryside and all of a sudden having the sky lit up by angels and so i don't know necessarily the joy that i'm supposed to be grabbing uh, gravitating to uh, john tyson a pastor and author uh, I think just wrote powerfully about just things that you see the gospel fill our hearts and actually fill our hearts with joy when we grasp onto them. He says that it answers three fundamental questions to our hearts. The first one is, does anybody want me? He said, ultimately, whether, no matter who you are, one of the primary things that you are looking for is that somebody wants you. And interestingly enough, the creation account of the Bible, a lot of people will say, man, all creation accounts, it's just like another myth of all the other different creation accounts of the different gods. False. There's actually very clear distinctions of the Christian creation accounts. One of them is this, that God did not make everything by wrestling with other gods and just warring and like he threw somebody over here and made some mountains and they knocked a god over here and it made an ocean and that it was through primarily violence and war. But rather his primary motivation in creation is love. And not only that, it depicts God being outside of creation meaning that he doesn't create things because he needs something from them. He's completely outside of them. He needs nothing from them. And so when he creates them, he's fully able to give and bless them. Not only that, in other creation stories, the only ones who are built, built in with the uh, image of God are royalty. But in our story, it says every human being has been made in his image. That's why it doesn't matter how much life and capacity you have to bring value to this world it is you just by being human have eternal significance
significance of being made in God's image. And so ultimately, God, our story tells of God who didn't just make us because he needs something from us. He made us because he wants us. And so it answers that question. Secondarily, it answers not only, does anybody want me? It also says, in spite of all I've done, does anyone still want me? Because sin is a really unpopular topic to talk about today. But it's funny, for even though we've removed talking about sin, we have not removed the experience of carrying the weight of it. Brene Brown has the most popular TED Talk of all time, unless that's changed in the last however many, whatever. I, I don't keep up anymore, four kids. Either way, at one point she had the most popular TED Talk of all time, and it was on guilt and shame. And she defined guilt as I have done something wrong. She defined shame as I am something wrong. Ultimately, the Bible says both are true. That I have done things wrong, but not only that I've done things wrong, even if I stopped doing things wrong, just there's something in my heart that is wrong within me. There's something within that which I want, which is turned inward on itself. And so we have this concept of sin, which the Bible portrays as a debt that you cannot repay. It talks about it as a spiritual adultery. We're promiscuous with our love, giving it to career, to giving it to relationships, giving it to comfort. It, re- it shows it as rebellion. I'll be my own God and I'll make my own rules, which in America we kind of like glorify rebellion because we started this country by kicking some tea in the Boston Harbor and we like went from there to rock and roll and man, we will take on the man. And we glorify the idea of rebellion unless you're rebelling against the one who's trying to bring you life. My wife worked in a special needs preschool for the first few years of, our, of her career. So there's this boy that all he wanted to do was go outside. And one, ty- one day when she's trying to bring him outside, because she was taking him away from another activity he wanted to do, he turns and hits her in the nose. In that moment, she's just like, you don't even realize I'm trying to lead you to that which you want more than this if you would just allow yourself to not be in rebellion to me. And in that moment, she's like, oh, I get it, I'm dumb. Because that's me and God. Because ultimately we find ourselves in the midst of rebellion, sin, spiritual adultery, it's rebellion, it's transgression. It's crossing lines that I shouldn't have crossed, which society will say, what if there are no lines you shouldn't cross? What if that's just a guilt complex put on us by a puritanical history? But ultimately, if you kill someone, you realize, no, I've crossed a line I shouldn't have crossed. There's some things that just should not be done. Sexual sin is not wrong just because of puritanical guilt complex. It's because someone else is made in the image of God. And me using their image or their body just for my own pleasure is disrespecting that. It's not only disrespecting that image in them, it's disrespecting the image in me. It's casting it aside. And so there's things that we have done wrong, whether it be sexual sin, whether it be sin of anger, whether it be sin of selfishness, self uh, love and motivation, regardless. We find ourselves in a society where we carry a tremendous amount of guilt and shame. And this nagging statement, if people really knew me, if they really knew me, they wouldn't love me. That's why we become a society of pretending. We make entire identities through social media, or through the ability of just being able to craft a picture. But the problem is, is now we find ourselves having to go up out in public and live up to those identities. That's why so many of us find ourselves completely exhausted. At the end of the day, we just want to 
go and binge into some sort of fantasy because you find yourself just so tired of pretending all the time, of gearing yourself up for work or social relationships, or maybe hiding yourself in your work, or hiding yourself in the few relationships, this person I trust and something to cling on to them. And no matter where you find yourself, you find yourself in the place of saying, if people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. Which then, ultimately, the gospel comes and answers the story of God saying he created us because he wanted us. And now, even in our sin, he comes after us. Jesus comes at Christmas not just to be a good moral example, but to come and say, I have come to redeem the world. I come and live a life to show that I'm bringing the kingdom and healing people, but then I come to sacrifice myself on a cross so that sinful, broken people who are not chasing after me, not the good ones, not the ones who figured it out, but the ones who are continuing to run rebellion against me, those ones I have come to trade my life for. I love that Jesus says at one point in the Gospels, hey, it's not for the healthy that I showed up here for. It's for the sick. And so everyone who knows they're sick are welcome in. Because ultimately the cross is showing that he cancels a debt. People always say, like, how does God just forgive it? How does God just forgive, like, what I've done? He doesn't just forgive it. He pays with the life of God in the flesh himself, an eternal righteous sacrifice. My sin, not in part, but in whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Therefore, it is well with my soul. Not only does he bear the weight of sin, but then he places us in him. He places us in Jesus, meaning that now we take on all the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus, that we are seated in heaven now, that for those of us who have believed in Christ, our sin and our debt is canceled, and we are placed at some level, I am now sitting in Jesus, that God is, that's where he sees me, that's where he's placed me. Because ultimately the human default the heart is not just towards rebellion, it's self-righteousness. It's that I'll get better on my own. I'll clean myself on my own. Here's the only problem. How do you clean yourself if your hands are the ones that have the mud on them? So instead, he says, no, you're not the one who cleans you. I'm the one who cleans you. I forgive you for your sin. I give you your record before God. It's something that you don't drum up. I give it to you. Now that when you see yourself, you see yourself as loved as Jesus was loved. And so he places us in him, and then he ultimately fills us with, our, with his spirit, which answers the third question that we're asking. Is there actually a power that can change me? Because ultimately it's not self-effort that never has worked. You've been doing that for a long time. But ultimately it's the fact that he comes and he says, no, I'm going to make you, a, I'm not going to make sick people healthy. I'm going to make dead people alive by giving them my spirit. And then as they have my spirit, they will be transformed into the image of the sun. And that always confuses people. They're like, okay, so that doesn't mean I just like sit on the couch like eating foods that end in the word Eidos and like he just like does something to me mysteriously. No. Like there's very much so a partnership that he works with us and in our lives, moving us forward and in our experience. But he says, ultimately, if you're going to rely on your own ability to get this done, then it's never going to happen. It's not until people show up and eventually say, you have to do it or it doesn't happen, that he then slowly but surely transforms you into 
the human being that you were always meant to be and that which you deeply desire to be but have found to be impossible. And so ultimately in that picture of us being made as somebody who is wanted by God and then in all that we've done, he knows all that we've done. He knows all that you will do and he still wants you. And in that, in releasing to that truth and the fact that he is the one who saves you, not you, then you actually become one who then his spirit is able to change over a long period of time, over much struggle. But let me, before we end, if that's the joy that is to motivate us, some of you are like, man, I am there. Like, praise Jesus, hallelujah. And some of you are like, uh, I'm not there at all. I maybe know that, maybe don't, but I find no joy. And so I just want to really quickly say, okay, what do you do if you're here and you're just like, okay, I'm hearing that right now, but it's just like hitting my heart like there's a casing around it? There's probably a lot. I mean, you could do a whole series probably on that. Uh, Books have been written about this, so this is going to be high level at best. But I'd say at least three things to hit quickly. You say like, okay, I want to feel joy about that. I want to have a joy that leads me into mission. But ultimately, I can't make myself feel joy. And that's true. It's an emotion. You can't make yourself feel anything. It's a gift of God. But one thing we do know about the one thing that we feel is that what we feel is highly influenced by just that which we think about. Uh, One pastor who used to say all the time, what I think about is what I tend to care about. And what I tend to care about is what I tend to chase. I mean, just a practical example for me, I moved here from West Nebraska, and I had no affinity for Indiana sports teams. In fact, even when the Super Bowl of the Bears and the Colts was going on, I was at college, and I was at Butler, where half people were Colts fans and half the people were Bears fans, and I just went around basically aggregating everybody because I didn't care about either team. And then I was here for enough years, and I start seeing the Colts logo everywhere, and you start, like, reading about them, and you start seeing other people, and you start going to parties, and you start, like, hanging out, and you hear about the, what they're doing, and, and you hear about the different players, and all of a sudden you start to be like, that is a beautiful shade of blue. And <laughs> what in the world, like, why? It would the, you just look at the Patriots blue, and you're like, that blue looks evil. It's objectively evil. <laughs> And there's something about the color combination that's just like it's dissonant toward, it's against the Imago Day. And, <laughs> and all of a sudden, just by thinking about them and being in their regular presence, seeing the imagery, all of a sudden you start to care about them. And all of a sudden you start to watch games and planning your life around it and paying money to go to games. And so what I thought about is what I cared about. And what I cared about is I started to chase. And so some of you, you're not finding yourself filled with the joy of the gospel because you have no fuel to put into the fire. There's no time to come around and to open up Scripture and have your emotions changed by them. Have your life over the years and years moved by prayer, by regular patiently coming before the Spirit and allowing Him to do work in your heart. There's many other spiritual formation disciplines that we've been talking about throughout the years and we'll continue to talk about. We're going to do fasting in the month of February. Everyone get excited. <laughs> and so as we do that, hey <laughs> and as we do that, there's ways, and, uh, ways that we're going to regularly pursue after just simply having that which we think about become what we care about, become what we chase. But then also I'll say this. Maybe you're someone who doesn't experience right, uh, joy right now because you're someone who struggles with depression and anxiety, which I've been talking with people in legion about that. 
And I'm one of those people. That's definitely my story. And I would say that some of the things that I have to do to try to pursue joy in this season are not overly spiritual, at least not in the traditional sense, but they're things like pursuing exercise, pursuing medication, pursuing counseling, getting to things that might be really healthy and life-giving for you. And I just want to take time to say that some of you are like, man, I don't feel the joy of Christ in this season. And maybe it's just because there's a chemistry right now that needs to be reworked. And maybe some of that's going to be through prayer and scripture, and some of that is going to be through counseling and getting to the root of that anxiety and why that's there. And then lastly, I've talked about this before, but I just have to keep bringing this up because, again, I talk to a lot of people going through this. Maybe you're somebody who's just going through the wall spiritually. In the book Emotional Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro in chapter 6 writes about the concept of going through the wall where he says, when you first come to Jesus, you first come to Christ and you hear the truth of the gospel, it just seems like it's effortless in the way that it just makes you want to worship and learn, like you sing songs, listen to sermons, be in community, and it just seems like, man, there's nothing that could make you not want to do that until a few years go by or five years go by or ten years go by. Or maybe you have a couple cycles of, of this going on where all of a sudden those emotions tend to dry up and all of a sudden you start saying things like, I wish I could get back to when I first believed. I wish I could get back to restoring the joy of my salvation. When he says what you're experiencing actually is a completely normal part of Christian maturity. He said that God won't let you to continue to live off of those initial zeal emotions for him because even those emotions for him are not him himself. He won't let you worship the emotion, the feeling you get from him. And so he'll take it, and he'll allow you to learn to stand on your own legs. Again, C.S. Lewis, he writes about this experience in the Screw Tape Letters, which is a book about a demon writing to his nephew demon about how to tempt people away from Jesus. And he writes this. He says that God is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He'll set uh, people off with communications of his presence, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness an easy conquest over temptation, but he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws. If not, in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It's during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that, is growing, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. That's just trying to say for so many of you who I feel like I've talked to, who you find yourself here, that maybe God's call to you is simply the call of continuing to show up and be in his presence. You don't feel it. That's what Pete Cazero says. He says it's just an experience of showing up each day, not going around the, will, the wall, over it or under it, but just allowing him in his timing to slowly push you through because he does a great work of transformation, humility, and life-giving ministry. The people that have been through the wall are those who are able then to experience a great deal of sacrifice for a cause of bringing the kingdom. We've got to jump straight to communion. In doing so, I don't know where you're at. I don't know if that describes you. I don't know if you're the one who's experiencing the joy and man, you are like, I come forward to receive the 
bread and the cup representing the body and the blood as a joyful reminder of that I am forgiven and that I am fully righteous in this moment before God through Jesus wherever you are. Or again, if you're just one who is just like patiently coming and without necessarily emotional, emotional connection coming and allowing just to be in the presence of the Spirit regardless of what you feel in this moment. I invite you forward to come if you are a believer, if you believe in Jesus, regardless of your emotional capacity to come forward and feel the joy or just come forward and have the presence of what you know is a joyful act be done as you take the bread, tear it off, and dip in the cup. And so we'll have a gluten-free station up here to my right and your left. And may, let's pray right now for the Spirit of God to be placing joy in us. Father God, Lord, I pray for those of us here that are experiencing your joy deeply, that that would not be something that would terminate uh, in this moment, but would be that which naturally overflows and motivates us to be a part of building your kingdom, of sacrificing for the sake of your cause. And for those of us who I prayed about who find for themselves in whatever season of, of finding joy, being uh, stubborn, and uh, finding your presence to be um, not just overflowing them with presence and joy, Lord, I pray that uh, two things. One, that you would be taking them us through that wall, uh, Lord, and having us cling tightly to you in the midst of it. And then um, also, Lord, just giving us in that the ability to be like the tree that's planted by streams of living water that even in dry seasons produces fruit. Lord, I pray for um, your spirit again to be what sends us out into mission, not our own building our kingdom or our own self-importance because ultimately it's not going to be on our own schedule or our own time. It's going to be on yours. So Lord, allow us to die to self. Uh, and come alive to what you're doing in this world and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.